Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sakes I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. 
And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before we consider this passage together, let's just ask for the Lord's help this morning. God, our Father, we just thank you that living in a culture of death, with death all around us, that we are in the presence of one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. And so we pray with your servant Samuel so many years ago, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We come under the authority of your word. We pray that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive your word. For we ask it, our Father, in the powerful name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our study of John's Gospel, and we find ourselves here at the 11th chapter, and I would have to say that the 11th chapter is the climax of Jesus' public ministry. In chapter 4, you'll recall he'd healed a boy who was at the point of death. In chapter 5, a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And in chapter 9, he had healed a man born blind, and now, at the climax of his public ministry, he raises his friend Lazarus, who had been dead for four days. So the focus of this chapter is life. Life is a theme that we find throughout the Gospel of John. So many verses, we find many verses in John about life, and particularly everlasting life. We could look at John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Or John 5, 24, He that hears my word and believes on him who sent me has everlasting life. Or John 10 and 10, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And now here in our chapter, Jesus declares, I am the resurrection and the life. And as such, he confronts death, the great enemy of life. And like a warrior, calls his friend Lazarus back to life. And all of this, of course, foreshadows his own resurrection, which in turn, as our brother has prayed, anticipates our resurrection. For as we have in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, of course, we have to remember that the grand purpose of this, the seventh sign of Jesus, as with all the signs in John's gospel, is that, and we've said it so many times before, it's that they would believe 
as we have in the 20th chapter in verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, there is nothing that tests our faith like death. Nothing that separates between what we truly believe and what we merely profess like death. And so we see the theme of believing throughout this chapter. Verse 15, and for your sakes I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Verse 26, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? In verse 42, but I said, I said this on account of the people standing around that you may believe that you sent, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, it would be nice if we could learn to believe and to trust while lying in green pastures and as he leads us by the still waters. But there are some things that can only be learned in the valley of the shadow of death. And so it is into the valley that the good shepherd leads those he loves so that he might strengthen their faith and so that he might dissolve their unbelief. Well, let's consider... First, the family that we're introduced to here, the family of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They were among the closest of Jesus' friends. They had taken him in and cared for him. He had spent many hours with them, teaching them and enjoying their company. And in this chapter, there are several references to Jesus' love for them. So, When the sisters sent to him, saying of their brother, Lord, he whom you love is ill, it's not merely to inform him. There was an implied, urgent plea. Come and come now. There was an urgency in the message. But Jesus knows something that they don't know. And in verse 4, he tells us, he says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus does not say that this illness will not result in death, but that death will not be the final outcome, but rather the glory of God. It will be for the glory of God and the blessing of this family to go through the valley of the shadow of death. And so in verse 5 and 6, we read, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. The two-day delay was not contrary to his love, but rather because of his love. Now, on a side note, I don't want you to get confused by the timeline here. It seems clear that Lazarus was living when this message from the sisters was sent to Jesus. And so you could ask, if Jesus only delayed two days, how was it that Lazarus had been dead four days when he arrived? And the simple explanation to that is travel time. Let me try to explain that. According to John 10 and 40, 
It appears that Jesus was across the Jordan where John had been baptizing, likely Bethabarab, which is Bethany beyond Jordan, not to be confused with Bethany, the home of these sisters. It's about 33 kilometers or a day's journey from Bethany, the home of Mary and Martha. So let's just say if if Lazarus died shortly after the messenger left, by the time the messengers got to Jesus, that would have been day one. The delay was day two and day three, and then a day's journey would have been four days. So even if he had left, even if the Lord Jesus had left immediately, he would not have been there before Lazarus died. But still... How is it love to keep your loved ones grieving for an additional two days? Why not just make a command across the distance as he had done with the official's son in John 4? Well, I believe the Lord wanted to show them that his word could not only cross the distance between Bethabara and Bethany, but that it could cross the chasm between life and death. He would not rob those he loved from the development of their faith that would result from the display of the glory of God. So in love, he delays two days. Now, I want us to consider the impact of this crisis and the Lord's response to it as it affected three people. And that's how we'll break up this chapter. It's a bit of a lengthy chapter, so so we can sort of keep a handle on it. We'll look at it from this perspective. How it affected the disciples, how it affected Martha, and how it affected Mary. The disciples had to learn to trust in the face of great danger. Martha had to move from mere profession to belief. And Mary had to learn to endure through the silence of God. Well, let's start with the disciples. When the Lord tells his disciples that they are going to Judea again, they become very anxious and they remind the Lord that the Jew, of the Jews' recent attempt to stone him there. For them, the kindest thing for Jesus to do would be to stay put and not to lead them into harm's way. So, from a human perspective, you could say that the Lord was placed in a dilemma, caught between his love for the sisters and his love for the disciples. Love from the perspective of Mary and Martha would have been to come immediately. But love from the perspective of the disciples would have been to stay put and not to take them on a suicide mission, as they imagined it would be. But Jesus evaluates the situation not merely on the basis of what his loved ones want, but what he knows is for the glory of God and for their blessing. For the sisters, that required a two-day delay. And for the disciples, it meant taking a dangerous journey that they did not want to take. And so in verse 9, he says to the disciples, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day... He does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. The Lord's earthly ministry was the day. And Jesus knew 
figuratively speaking, that he was in the 11th hour. There was no time for, the de- for delay. He wanted his disciples to realize that opportunities that are not acted upon vanish away. When God says it's time to act, it's time to act, circumstances notwithstanding. Now was the time to go to this bereaved family. Now was the time to share the light, shine the light into the darkness. Now was the time to bring life where there was death. And so they follow him, but they do so with a sense of resignation. You know, there are many people around us today who have put their lives on hold for the last 14 months, and I'm afraid that there are many more that are going to put their lives on hold for the the next, I don't know how many more months. And the rationale is this, that I'll catch up with all the things I didn't do next year, when there's less danger, when there's less risk. Listen, when God opens doors, you walk through them. You don't wait till tomorrow or next week or next year. When God tells you to do something, you do it now. We're not promised tomorrow. And you know something else? When God opens a door, there is no safer path than going through it, no matter how risky it may seem. Thomas needed to learn that. He says, let us go that we may die with him. He went, but with resignation, like he was walking to the gallows. Some of us walk around like we're walking to the gallows. Because we have not learned that the safest place to live, the happiest place to live, is in the center of the Lord's will, danger notwithstanding. There is a certain invincibility that you acquire when you know that you are doing what the Lord has asked you to do. But you have to take the first step. So Thomas went with resignation. But at least he went. At least he went. And in the process, the fear melts away in the path of obedience. So here we see in our Lord, our Lord perfectly navigating the pressure to rush and the pressure to retreat. Love doesn't seek to short-circuit the work of God by rushing in without the Father's leading. And love does not retreat when the path of faithfulness leads into harm's way. And I think this is very instructive for the church to consider I mean the church universally to consider, particularly at a time when we see the church becoming so polarized by two conflicting options on how we are to navigate this current crisis. We have some that would tell us that the risks are too high, that the way of love is to retreat, to just stay at home. And we have others that would tell us that the only acceptable response is to rush in with unqualified resistance. So how do we find the balance that the Lord exhibited here? Well, a better question might be, where do we strike that balance? And we'll learn that shortly from Mary. But first, we're going to meet Martha. We've talked about the disciples' reaction and what this meant for them. Now let's talk about Martha. Martha is not like Thomas. She does not retreat. She's a woman of action. She was used to dealing with things head on. It's not the first time we've met Martha. We find her in Luke 10. Remember that Jesus was visiting the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And 
Martha, uh, Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet, learning at his feet, and Martha was distracted with much serving. And Martha took exception to this and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. I think we see in this passage that Martha's frenetic lifestyle did not prepare her for this moment of crisis. As one writer put it, it's much easier to do the will of the Lord than to suffer the will of the Lord. Those of us who are action-oriented can endure much as long as we can keep moving, keep talking, keep doing. But when there's nothing left to do, nothing left to say, then the famine in our souls is revealed and the chasm between our profession and our belief becomes evident and then we crash. F.B. Meyer put it the way uh, no one else can put it. He said this, and I quote, the multiplicity of our engagements turns away our attention from our griefs. But when all is over, when there is nothing more to do, when we are left with the silent dead, requiring nothing more at our hands, when the last office is performed, the last flower arranged, the last touch given, the tears come. Close quote. See, the problem with a frenetic life is that it stunts our spiritual growth, and often it takes a crisis to reveal it. When tragedy strikes, we find that our confessions outstrip our faith, and we find ourselves unable to find him and to draw comfort from his presence. So Martha, when she meets the Lord, she makes three grand statements. She says, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. But then having said all of this, when the Lord asks them to remove the stone from the tomb, she says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. And the Lord gently rebukes her. Did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God. And so in the midst of the crisis, Martha needs a crash course. And Jesus, who loved her every bit as much as Mary, gives her these wonderful words and then goes to the tomb of Lazarus and proves them to be true. Listen carefully to what he says. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let me take just a moment to unpack these three phrases. I am the resurrection and the life. That means that the Son of God has power to raise the dead, as we saw in John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The next part, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That means that anyone who believes in him, even if he should die, will be raised again at the resurrection. And the third part, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
That means that physical death does not separate us from God. We live on beyond the grave eternally, even before we receive our resurrection bodies. You know what else it means? It also means that some will never die, even physically. And I'm not sure why we don't talk about this more or live in the hope of it. If the Lord comes before I reach the end of the road, I will never die, and nor will you if you belong to him. Now, brothers and sisters, if we wait for the crisis to get our theology clear on the eternal life that we have, it's going to be a problem. It's not just a future possession. It's a present possession. You cannot die. And even if you should die, it would only be to pass into the immediate conscious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ while you await your resurrection body. Death is not the end for the believer. In many ways, it's just the beginning. And though we do not relish the process of death, no healthy person does, there is absolutely nothing on the other side of death that we need to fear. You know, I was reading an article in this month's table talk from Ligonier Ministries about divisions in the church. And the article pointed out that throughout the centuries, divisions, regrettable as they are, have had this benefit, that they have forced the church to be more, to more accurately define the Christian faith according to scripture. The article went on to say that the 4th century Arian controversy forced the church to move to more accurately define the deity of Christ. The 16th century indulgence controversy forced the church to better articulate the doctrine of justification. And as I thought about that, I thought, what seems to be dividing the church now? Is there something that's been lost theologically that's behind that? In part, it may be the church's relationship to government. But I think the bigger thing is the church's great fear of death. A people that are fearful of death are easily manipulated, as we are seeing And I wonder if what is behind that fear is that we have lost sight of the Lord's return. The hope of the resurrection and the recognition that eternal life is a present possession. Well, how do we get that back? Well, the answer is at the feet of Jesus. And we learn that from Mary. So we've talked about the disciples. We've talked about Martha. Let's finally consider Mary and her encounter with the Lord. And the first thing you'll notice is that she greets the Lord with the very same words as Martha did. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And you can understand how she felt that way. She had seen Jesus' works of healing. She knew that he possessed the power that could have saved their brother. The Jews recognized the same thing. For in verse 37, they said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have also kept this man from dying? So it would have been easy to see herself as a victim of the Lord's proximity. To her mind, it could have been that he was just simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. And she could have found reason to blame as well. For this is what we do in times of severe trial. She could have said, 
Well, the reason why he was in the wrong place at the wrong time is because of the Pharisees who had driven them out by their threats to kill him. You know, brothers and sisters, nothing leads us to despair like believing that our trials are meaningless and random and that we have been victimized. This leads to deep bitterness. But in the life of a, of a believer, our lives are never random. Our, our trials are never random. They are never meaningless. They are providential. Providential. And I think Mary, although deeply grieved, had laid hold of that. Why do I say that? Because she sat still and waited for the Lord to call her. Waited till the Lord called. She didn't resist his call like the disciples, nor did she rush ahead of his call like Martha. She awaited his call, and then she went quickly. She went with her grief, but not to the tomb, but to him. And in doing so, she drew others with her. And when she found the Lord, she fell at his feet and in anguish poured out the thing that was grieving her most. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Was she complaining? Was she questioning? Or was she simply acknowledging the disappointment and the perplexity that accentuated her grief? Do such emotions have any place in worship? Well, if you don't think so, then you need to read the Psalms. I believe that our perplexity and disappointment provide a unique opportunity, in fact, for worship. For if I worship when all things are as I would like them to be, well, isn't that to be expected? But if when the Lord hurts me deeply and perplex, the Lord's ways perplex and grieve me, if then I worship, this is an acknowledgement that he is God And his way is best, even when it makes no sense to me. As the suffering Job put it, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So recognizing the providential hand of God enabled Mary to be still while others panicked. And thus she is able to lead others away from the place of death to the feet of him who is the resurrection and the life. And there at his feet she found comfort and compassion, for there the Lord wept with her. So when our circumstances overwhelm us, we must trust the providential hand of God. As Spurgeon put it, God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. I love the way the hymn writer Paul Gerhard said it. We leave it to himself to choose and to command. With wonder filled, we soon shall see how wise, how strong his hand. We comprehend him not. Yet earth and heaven tell God sits as sovereign on the throne and ruleth all things well. Well, where did Mary learn this? I think... We find the answer in Luke 10. When given the choice, Mary had sat and learned at the Lord's feet. She chooses the good portion, and it was not taken from her. It stayed with her, and she was able to draw upon it in time of need. In Luke 10, she learned at his feet. And next week in John 12, we're going to find out that she worships at his feet. And here in John 11, she weeps at his feet.
And what is the Lord's reaction? The pain of one who comes to him in all her sorrow and confusion brings the Lord to tears. And he weeps with her. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Brothers and sisters, we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. There is not a thing that we go through that he does not, has not experienced sin apart. And there is not a single thing that you are going through that he does not feel as keenly as you do. But look now at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. According to Beasley and Murray, a better translation would be, became angry in spirit and very agitated. Angry and agitated at what? I believe it was the effects of death upon his creation and upon those he loved. And so he comes to the tomb not as a broken mourner, but as a warrior. As Calvin put it, and I quote, Christ does not come to the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler preparing for the contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans again for the violent tyranny of death, which he had to overcome, stands before his eyes, close quote. And so when I read verse 43, I hear a war cry. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. It's been said that if Jesus had not put Lazarus' name in front of that command, come forth, every grave would have opened and everyone who had died would have come forth. For as, we, as Jesus said in the fifth chapter, verse 28, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And in verse 44 we read, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. You know, when I picture this scene in my mind, I don't think so much about Lazarus emerging from the dark mouth of that cave, partially wrapped in linen strips. That's not what I picture. What I picture is the expressions on the faces of the disciples and on Mary and on Martha as the realization of who Jesus really is dawns upon them. And I want to believe that the disciples thought, why should we fear death when our master has the power of death? I want to believe that Martha recognized all at once that her resurrection hope was not some far-off thing. But it was the one who stood before her. And I want to believe that Mary said, I understand now that his delay was out of love because he wanted something so much better. You see, Lazarus was not the only one standing there who needed to be unbound and released, was he? They all needed to be in some sense. Like Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and the 11 of the disciples had resurrection life, but they needed to be unbound in order to enjoy it. And so it is with so many here this morning. You have resurrection life, 
but you're not enjoying it because you're bound up with inhibiting strips of unbelief. And you know, I think it's significant that the Lord gave them, the disciples, the job of loosing Lazarus. He had given Lazarus life, and now he gives them the job of helping Lazarus to enjoy it. And that is the job that he has given to each of us as well, as members, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to set one another free by loosing the bonds of unbelief through ministering Christ to one another. And that is why we read in Hebrews 10, and let us, verse 24, let us consider one, how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. And that's why we come here Sunday after Sunday, even when the conditions around us make it difficult. That's why we meet with each other throughout the week in small groups and Bible studies and one-on-one fellowship. And that's why we come to the Lord's table week after week, for here we meet with our Lord. And he gives us these tokens of his body and blood to remind us that he has cleansed us from our sins and that we belong to him and that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we're going to do that, but before we do, I want this, this morning just to say a word to someone here who is still paralyzed with the fear of death. You know, the Bible says that the sting of death is sin. Sin not only brings death, but it also makes the prospect of death terrifying. For to pass from this life with your sins is to pass into an eternity without God. The blackness of darkness forever, where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. There is every reason to fear that. But through his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ has removed the sting of death for all those who acknowledge their sin and put their trust in him alone to save them. And so in closing, let me repeat to you once more the words that Jesus said to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Well, if you do, then come now with your brothers and sisters to the Lord's table and let the knowledge of his presence chase your fear away. Let's come to the Lord's table.